I guess that's kind of our first pre-dedication, but <laughs> dedication warm-up. In Matthew 19, last week we got, I believe, through, well, I know we got through the celibacy passage, so interestingly enough, we're at verse 13, and it says, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and then departed from there, showing his priority. And then we looked Sunday at this passage of the rich young ruler. And again, in the context, understand the necessity for anyone, even someone who's rich and young and a ruler, that if they're going to come to Jesus, they have to come as a child. They can't come bringing their baggage. They can't come talking about what they have to offer, but ultimately, we all have to come as little children with nothing in our hands, just offering ourselves and, and asking for his forgiveness and his blessing in our lives. And so we looked at that passage, but Jesus continued the discussion in verse 23. And he said to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples were kind of disturbed by this and, and wondered what he's talking about because they read it. We've heard the story so many times that we just kind of take it for granted. But what Jesus is saying here. And what the disciples were understanding is, even a rich guy, it's impossible. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, there have been some great commentaries written and great sermons preached about that the eye of a needle was a small gate in the city, and it was real hard to get a camel through it. You had to get all the baggage off the camel and scoot them down in order to fit under it. And that's a great story, but there's no documentation for it. It's just everyone quotes everyone else. I believe that Jesus was talking literally about a camel going through the eye of a needle because they said that's impossible not difficult it's impossible but what the disciples would have heard at that point is wait a minute if you are looking at this rich young ruler this powerful gifted man and you're saying that easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for him to be saved their idea was well, we don't have as much to offer as him. So how in the world is it possible for anyone to be saved? Because they said, his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? If a guy that has everything going for him, a guy who's righteous before the law, a man who said, I've kept all the commandments since I was a little kid. If he can't get saved, what hope is there for us? And Jesus said to the disciples, Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus is saying, yeah, for a person to earn their way to salvation, it is impossible. And really, to save someone who's lost, to take away someone's sins, it's impossible. Except... God can do the impossible. And it's important for us to always remember that God is in the business of doing the impossible. When the doctors say there's no way, God can step in and make something happen. When you look at the situation, you look at your life and where you're headed and what's going on, and you just go, there's just no way this is going to work out. Well, God loves to say, you're right. There's no way except I can do it anyway. 
He loves to do the impossible on behalf of his children. And, and that's what Jesus was saying here. Don't you realize none of you got saved because of, none of you followed me as on the basis of what you had to offer. None of you. And so get it out of your mind completely that somehow you can earn a standing with God. That somehow there's something, there's got to be something you can do that's worthwhile to God. He says, no. Salvation is impossible. But God does the impossible and he's the one who works this out. We don't work it out. And so then Peter latched onto that and said, uh, well, Lord, by the way, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what do we get? What's in it for us? So he's picking up on Jesus saying, you know, that rich people, it's impossible for them to get saved. But now Peter's going, well, we're really poor because we left everything we had to follow you. So now have we earned something with you? And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that is after the resurrection, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So Jesus is saying to Peter, he said, make no mistake about it. Not only cannot your riches bring you into a position of relationship with God, but not only that, anything that you do have that you give to him, he's going to make it so much more worth your while. It's as if your sacrifice meant nothing. And truly, when we see what God does for us eternally, when we see what heaven is like, we'll look back and think, boy, what were we doing whining about the things we did without? Here on this earth, we think, oh, it's such a sacrifice to give my time to God. It's such a sacrifice to give my money towards something that God wants to do. It's such a sacrifice that I've changed the whole direction of my life just for him. And he says, oh, don't worry. Anything that you do for me, it'll pay back. It'll be paid back a hundredfold. Whatever you lose on this earth, whatever you give up on this earth, I will make it so worth your while. But that isn't what gains you that. It doesn't earn you because what I give to you, he's saying, is so much more valuable than anything you could give to me. So get out of your head that you're doing me a favor by following me. Take a, put as far away from you as could be the notion that, oh, look what I've done for Jesus. Boy, look at me. I've really sacrificed much for him. How can we sit there and, and talk about our sacrifices for him when we see his sacrifice for us? And he'll do it regardless. And he's not demanding a bunch of sacrifices from us. He's not saying, in order to be saved, you're going to have to give up everything. Oh, if you want a, a deep relationship with him, there are certainly things that you'll need to get up, give up as he, as he demonstrated with the rich young ruler. But Jesus never calls us to give things up because that'll help him. He calls us to give things up because that'll help us. That will cause us to have less distractions. And therefore, then we can enjoy our fellowship with him. He closes off the chapter by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You hear this verse quoted a lot. And it's something that I think we should keep in our mind when we try to figure out God. 
that he likes to turn things around. In this case, rich young ruler couldn't make it, couldn't get there. It's not going to happen because his riches actually were keeping him from entering into a deeper relationship with God. On the other hand, disciples, they didn't have much to give up, really. Most of them probably weren't that wealthy, maybe with the exception of, of Matthew, who was a tax collector. But the tax collectors we know from scriptures like to party a lot. So even though he had a lot of money, he probably had most of it spent at that point. But otherwise, you're talking about fishermen and guys that were kind of hanging around, hanging around with nothing to do who ended up following Jesus. And they gave up all, all their loneliness and all of their fish, dead fish and fish nets and things. And they're going, oh, look what we gave up. Jesus says, you know what? The last will be first. The first will be last. In some ways, he said, someday you guys are going to be reigning on thrones. The whole notion of that must have been preposterous to them. See, in those days, you had to inherit royalty or you were nothing. You didn't just work your way up and run for president. You couldn't be Arnold on different strokes and next thing you know, you're running for governor. It just, it didn't happen that way. You had to earn the right. You couldn't become governor from being able to lift weights well, or you couldn't, you know, it was, you look at, or like Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer to president. It, that wasn't even a dream that they had in those days. You needed to buy and inherit and, you know, everything had to be just right or you didn't have a chance to have power or prominence. You stayed basically in the class to which you were born. And yet for him to tell these grubby fishermen who didn't understand much about God, who, you know, so often were sticking their foot in their mouth, who were just moments earlier rebuking children for coming to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want any children. And he, he's constantly having to explain these kinds of things to them. And yet he says, someday you're going to rule. People are going to be surprised when they see what happens when they get to the Lord. When those people who feel that they've done great things for God, they may get to heaven and find out that they already had their reward here on earth. On the other hand, people who got no attention, who quietly served, who just were willing to sacrifice, but feeling like I don't even have anything to give, like the widow who gave her mites. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in heaven for her? At that point, she just went in and put her mites in the plate and left and didn't know anything. Jesus pointed her out and talked to her and cited her as an example of someone who's doing it right. But as far as we know, the rest of her life, she probably went on as a widow in poverty, giving her little two mites whenever she could. And yet when we get to heaven, everyone's going to know who that lady was. And imagine she'll be she'll have a special place of prominence, I'm sure of it. She didn't here. On the other hand, there are some people who seem like they give so much and yet really giving for the wrong motives, giving to make themselves look good or even just to gratify themselves, they may find that the rewards aren't quite what they expected. But this rule, that, the spiritual rule, that the first will be last and the last will be first, in essence, what it's saying to us is don't Ask the question that the disciples were asking at different times. How can we be great in the kingdom? God will turn things upside down, do whatever he wants. And it's our job to be his children, to serve him now. And to leave up to him whatever he wants to do for us in the future. And he promises anything that you do here, you'll have a hundred times payback there. Now, 
The Bible talks a lot about not laying up treasures in heaven. Jesus did this earlier in Matthew. Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. But did I say that wrong? Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, how do you lay up treasures in heaven? Jesus seems to be saying here that certainly if you give here, you'll be having treasure there. What an investment program. Now, there are people who encourage you to give offering, for instance, to them now, and God will pay you back now. But from this passage, we see that's not what he's talking about. And in fact, the truth is, if when I put my money toward the Lord's work, and all he does is give me more money now, that's a ripoff. Money here, money now, it doesn't do much for you. It doesn't satisfy. It only is something that robs you of a relationship with God often. And so, I, personally, I'm not interested in giving to God now so that he'll give back to me now. I would rather say, you know what? I don't want it back, but you can pay me later when I get to heaven. And lay up treasures in heaven. And, and that's what Jesus is certainly teaching here. Hey, there's going to be this big reversal of fortune when we get to heaven. There's going, it's all going to be different. And I promise you, nothing that you do for him here. You know, you, you serve God here and sometimes you got to wonder. I, I wonder if I'm really accomplishing anything. I wonder if, is this really worth it? And often we look at what God calls us to do and feel like, God, I tried to do that. It fell on its face. I, boy, what a, what a waste. But it's not a waste because it's in the giving that God is going to end up blessing you. And you may not see the fruit here, but you may see it in heaven. You know, I think of Clint, who ministers over in England with kids, and ministering to kids anywhere is tough, but in England, it's extremely tough. And you look at the fruit, and you could go, man, I don't know. Is this really worth it? Well, two things. Number one, when he gets to heaven, then God's going to pay him back for everything he's given up. But Except that since I gave him attention tonight, that'll probably cost him. No, just kidding. <laughs> but, but secondly, imagine ministering in that environment... And he gets to heaven, and there's a couple kids there from that ministry as a result of the sacrifices that he made. When he gets to heaven, when we get to heaven, we're not going to care about, whoa, crowns, cool. But man, we see people that we've poured our lives into. We see people that we would have died for here on earth, and they made it to heaven. Treasure, treasure, value. And anything we do for God, when he calls us to do it, and we're faithful to do it, he will make it worth our while. Absolutely. Don't ever wonder about that. In fact, if we could have a, a, just a slight vision of what heaven's going to be like, I think we would spend the rest of our lives frantically trying to lay up treasures in heaven. Trying to give up anything that we have. Here, you want this? You want this? You want this? Here, let me take all my... Do this. Because we would realize the payoff later, the payoff where it really matters in the glory of God's presence. Now in chapter 20... We have this parable about the workers in the vineyard. And again, it's to drive home the same point. You've read it before, but basically what happens is a guy hires some people to work in the field and says that he'll pay them a denarius, a normal day's wage, for a day's work. 
And he went out about three hours later, and there were some guys hanging around outside Home Depot, and he said, hey, why don't you guys come and work in the vineyard too? And he said, I'll pay you, you know, just come and work in the field. And then the sixth hour and the ninth hour did the same. The eleventh hour, the day's almost up. He sees a few guys that aren't working, and he says, hey, why don't you come and work in my field? And, you know, they said, well, we don't have a job. Great, come on. So when evening was come, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they only worked an hour, he paid them a day's wage, a denarius. And they were excited. Man, I never made so much money in an hour before. But now the guys who had been working all day were thinking, whoa, if he's paying a denarius an hour, hey, we work 12 hours, we're only going to cash in. But they became a little more concerned because, but it says when uh, the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. It seems like it was not fair. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? You're giving me a dirty look because I did good to someone? So the last will be first and the first last for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus tells this story in order to make a point that we need to remember always. When it comes to reward, when it comes to how God treats people, you can't grade yourself on the curve. God is good to all of us, but we shouldn't be resentful when we see someone else get blessed, maybe blessed more than we do. We shouldn't get jealous. We shouldn't feel like, well, why do they have so much and we don't have much? The truth is, is God giving you what he said he would give you? His promise to give you eternal life, to make you rich in heaven, to give you the opportunity to spend an eternity with him. Has he, well, has he gone back on that deal? Has he decided that, no, I'm not going to do it? Of course not. But as we're straggling through this life, there are some people that it seems like he's blessed in other ways as well. And you might look at their house or their car, or you might look at the, their kids, and well, they have such easy kids. I, you know, I have a whole, you know, I have a whole ADD club at my house, and, I, and I'm like, why? You know, this doesn't seem right. It's not fair. Jesus is saying, God's order is funny. He has a purpose. He knows what he's doing. But the fact is, if he does for you what he says he'll do for you, then we're all rich. We're all blessed. We're all going to be fulfilled. And what happens in this life, who knows what the purpose of it is. But we can't afford to, well, the bottom line is God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't owe us anything except to keep his word, and he will do that. But we can't sit in judgment on life because it doesn't seem fair by our standards. Because you don't know. You may see those people who are blessed with that huge house or that nice car or those wonderful kids or that great marriage. And you may look at it and go, it's always been a struggle for me. It's not fair. Look what they have. But number one, you don't know what it is that they suffer through. You don't know what they've gone through already, what they will go through, or what it's like inside their house when all the doors and windows are closed. But not only that, they're a part of our body. Don't you want the body to be blessed? 
And we'll all have our opportunity. And if we don't have it here, we will in heaven. Our thing is, hey, if God's blessed us, great. If we have more than eternal life, if God, after you give your life to him, think about it. And how many people would really come forward and accept the Lord if it was really literally laying your life on the altar? If we said, they had a harvest crusade. And Greg said, come on down from the back rows. Your friends will wait. Just come down on this field. And when everyone's down here, We'll sing, you know, 100 verses of, of uh, you know, come just as you are. And then when everyone's down here, you're going to die just like that. Oh, you'll go to heaven. You'll be blessed. It'll be great. Well, essentially, that's what is supposed to happen. That we, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive. But he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you been crucified? Have you laid your all on the altar? Have you given it your all? Well, then, if he doesn't take you to heaven right then, he's just given you some life. I accepted the Lord in 1971. I'm on borrowed time. You know, over 30 years God has given me that he didn't have to. He could have taken me to be with him right then. Now, during that time, there's been some pain, but there's been some great times. There's been just some incredible blessing. Now, am I going to look at someone else who's had the same 30 years, but you know, look at them and go, yeah, but they have a few more toys than I do. Yeah, but they still have their hair. Yeah, but they still, what? God's given me so much. Why am I going to judge him? Because he gave somebody else something they hadn't given me when he's given me so much and when he's promised me so much later. And when he said anything you don't have here, you'll have hundredfold in heaven. So why do we judge him? Often, when God takes something away from us, our tendency is to feel like he ripped us off. Well, you may have a friend and you're blessed with some great times with them and a great relationship. And then they get sick and they go to be with the Lord. Maybe it's your spouse, your child, your parent. And you look and just go, God, how could you rip me off by taking this person away from me? I heard someone say one time, it's like if some guy just walked up to your door one day. And he knocked on your door and you opened the door and he gave you a thousand bucks. Didn't say anything, walked away. You thought, wow, this is weird. It's probably stolen. I'm not going to spend it. The next day he comes back, he gives you a thousand bucks again. The next day, a thousand bucks. Always, every day at the same time for a month. And you're getting all of this money. Now you're at the end of the month and he's giving you 30, you know, 3,000, $30,000. And then by this time, by, after a couple of weeks, you're waiting for him. You've got cookies baked every day and milk, kind of like Santa Claus, you know. And it's like, hey, it's great to see you. You're giving him a hug. It's great. He's just giving you the thousand bucks. But then the first day of the next month comes along and you're waiting. And he's not there. He doesn't show up. No knock on the door. You've got the cookies there and the milk. And milk's getting warm. Cookies getting cool. And, and you look out your window, and he's across the street giving your neighbor a thousand bucks. All right, what are you going to do? You're going to run out there and start choking the guy, going, "Where's my thousand dollars? You're ripping me off." You're getting... no, of course not. You're going to say, "Well, it was nice while it lasted." And ultimately, that's our perspective. That has to be our perspective on life. If the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, Job said, "Blessed be the name of the Lord." Whatever He gives us, He can take away. 
And he's not ripping us off because he is going to pay us so much more than we deserve. So much more than just a denarius a day. And so the lesson of this parable, again, driving home the point to them not to live their lives ruled by the acquisition of things because ultimately it's God who gives. It's God who can take away. And whatever he does with his people is not only fair, it's good. It's way past fair. We, none of us, have a right to complain at all. And that's why the Bible spends a lot of time talking about that. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, so that you would be children of God above rebuke in a, in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's upside down if we start to think that God owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything. He gives us so much. And he will give us hundred times more in eternity. But we should just let him do what he wants because he knows what he's doing is basically the message. Then Jesus again predicts his death and resurrection. It says in verse 17, Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify and the third day he will rise from the dead. Jesus repeatedly, consistently telling them, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. Never one without the other, really. But when they commented on it at all, remember before, Peter, no, no, you're not going to die. That's not right. Even though he said he was going to raise from the dead. This time, the response is the passage that we saw two Sundays ago. And so we won't go through it a lot again. But, but James and John's mom, Salome, coming and going, can my boys be the greatest in the kingdom? That was their thought. Apparently, when he's saying, I'm going to go die and rise from the dead, and then they go, oh, well, after you're restaurant of the dead, you know, when you're in your kingdom, can we have a prominent position? It, it's just kind of not comprehending what he was talking about. It's like a, I was with a friend of mine once, and she had cancer, and she was dying. And one of her little boys came in. And, I, you know, you worry, do the kids really understand what's going on, that mommy's going to go be with Jesus and things like that? And, and this, her little boy came in and while I was there and said, mommy... She goes, yeah. He goes, after you go be with Jesus, she said, yeah. He said, can I have your toothbrush? <laughs> and it was like, the truth is, that should be the attitude we do have toward death. That's an example of kids understanding more. But in this case, the disciples were kind of, you know, clueless. And, and here they were worried about their position. And Jesus goes through in this passage and talks to them about the fact that the, yeah, you'll be there. It's my father's job to decide who's at my right and left hand, but I already told you you're going to reign. But he says, in the meantime, and, you know, the way to get to resurrection is by dying, and I don't think you guys are completely fathoming this. I don't think you're understanding or realizing the painful path that you're going to have to walk, the one that I walk. And when he said, can you drink of that cup, that cup of suffering, they said, sure we can. And he goes, well, yeah, actually you will. But it's not for me to decide who sits at my right and left hand. So you can get the tape if you weren't here a couple Sundays ago. Then we have, at the end of the chapter, two blind guys. It says, as they went out from Jericho, verse 29, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Same thing that people had cried out before and been healed. Same thing that the Syrophoenician woman cried out and Jesus kind of rebuked her um, in order to, 
teach a different lesson. But in this case, he stopped. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? Because they were asking for mercy. And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. They asked for their physical eyes to be open. That's what they were thinking of. But when they felt the compassionate touch of Jesus, not only could they then see, but they got up and followed him. Their prayer was answered in a way that was greater than they could have imagined, really. The, the prayer was answered in a way that their spiritual eyes were open. And following Jesus, so much greater than just being able to see a dying world around you. But it's seeing a savior who gives you life. And, and so here, and again, we just see the compassion of Jesus. He just looked and he cared and he did something about it. And it's great to know that when we cry out to him, when we, you know, are desperate, he hears us and he has compassion. He cares and he'll touch us too and he'll heal us. Chapter 21, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, th this was a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Imagine just the very thought of Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies in the Old Testament, but this one especially, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But it's made a little more amazing by the circumstances where he sent the disciples and said, go to this particular place, there's going to be a donkey there, tell him the master needs him and he'll let you have the donkey. What are the chances that even that would happen? He didn't say, go rent a donkey or call a donkey taxi service and get one up here or hail a donkey or whatever. It was just you go to this guy and it's been prepared because scripture will be fulfilled. And it reminds us once again that the Gospel of Matthew presenting Jesus as the Messiah over and over and over again, citing Old Testament scriptures and saying, here's how he fulfilled it. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and they brought the donkey, the colt, and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. So they put their clothes on the donkey and they put Jesus up on the donkey and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this was, a, this was prophesied in the Psalms, and now here it's fulfilled on what we call Palm Sunday. The, the day when it's just before Jesus is going to die at this point. And here they take him and they place him on a donkey, and he's riding on that little road off the Mount of Olives, winding its way down the hill to the gate of Jerusalem as he was going ultimately to his death heading down there for the last time. This was, I mean, it's an event that we remember from kids, seeing it in movies, hearing the story. Amazing. 
the prophecy being fulfilled that this would happen. But you've got to wonder about the people because they're crying out, Hosanna. They're realizing you're the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. And yet, at that point, he has all these fans. What happens just a few days later when, you know, less than a week later, they're all saying, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. The people are so fickle. But again, it's an indication that when they thought he was heading down to fulfill these prophecies, they figured he was taking over right now. This is it. He's going to become the king. Woohoo, let's make him the king. But when he went down there and ended up being taken and captured and punished and, and ready to die, they were so disappointed, they figured, no, nah, this can't be the Messiah. And so they turned on him. They were resentful because they misunderstood what he was saying. They didn't understand those prophecies in the Old Testament. As a result, they turned on him. But here they're cheering. They're accepting him. It's, it's almost as if this is the, well, they've accepted him as their Messiah, but they don't understand he's going to have to die. And, and so we see this, of course, this event in itself Interestingly enough, his being presented as the king, this is the last chance for Israel. He's being presented as a king. What are they going to do about it? But this was prophesied clear back in Daniel chapter 9 when there was a prophecy that said, and at this time they're in captivity, you know, that between the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity, the, the north and the south. And, and Daniel had this prophecy that said, there's going to be a time when there's a declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's going to happen. And he said, from the, from the day that that declaration is made to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the coming of Messiah the Prince, it'll be... It'll actually be the, you know, 173,880 days. Now, you calculate that, he does it by weeks of years, 69 weeks, 69 times 7 years, 360 days per year. You have to make a couple of adjustments for leap year and things like that. But basically, if you do the math, 173,880 days after the declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was when Messiah was supposed to come. And they've done studies on this. We know when Artaxerxes made that declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know the year when that happened, and there in 446 BC in April. And if you count 173,880 days from that day, it comes to the very day when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey in his triumphal entry. It's amazing. How could you have made that happen? How could that have been the case? And, and there's a, uh, we don't have time to go into it a whole lot. Maybe next Palm Sunday we will or something. But there's a book by Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince. If you want to look at it and if you like playing with numbers, you can see how he worked the math out. But here Daniel hundreds of years before, predicted the exact day that Jesus Christ would rise in, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Amazing. And he fulfilled that prophecy. And it says when he came to the Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? What's going on? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus went down then to the temple 
And it says he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. It was a big scam thing that was going on in Israel in those days. People, poor people would come from all over to make their sacrifices and the priest would have to inspect the animals that they brought to make sure they were without blemish. They would look at them and say, nah, this isn't good enough, but hey, we happen to have some people right here, the guys at the tables, and they'll sell you a dove that's already been pre-approved. It's like those used cars now that are, have a special warranty as if they've done something special to them. And, and that's kind of the idea is, oh, you know, there are some doves over there that we've already stamped them and they're okay. You don't even have to get them inspected at all. Just give us the certificate. And then they would charge like way more than what a dove ought to cost. But you couldn't go back home, couldn't go out in the streets and do it again. You've been waiting in a long line in order to get up there for your sacrifice. Well, Jesus was angry about this twice in his ministry. He came and did this threw those guys out, tipped over the tables, removed the money changers. And this is one of the times when he did it. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Isaiah had said that it was to be a house of prayer. And Jeremiah had said it had become a den of thieves. And so he puts these two scriptures together and says, you guys have done exactly what the prophets said you were going to do. Then after that event, and, and he was, he was removing people that were bad, that were, that were taking advantage of the people, that were ripping them off. And so there wasn't a huge movement of people to defend them because the masses were going, good, somebody's finally fixing this. But it says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That makes it harder to deal with him. First, he went and, and removed the corruption. And next thing you know, before you can get to him to throw him out for doing that, for violating some law, now he's healing people in the temple. And it says that the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, save now. They were indignant. It made them mad, but what could they do? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You've perfected praise. Earlier, we, uh, in the other Gospels, it tells about how he was ordered not to let the people be calling him Hosanna. And uh, he said, look, if they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out. This is time. The truth is here, and you're going to have to deal with it. So here it says, then they left. He, he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Then we have this interesting story of the fig tree. It says, in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and he saw a fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to the tree, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And the disciples saw it, and they thought, it's a cool trick, but what's the point? How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it'll be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, that was the answer to the question of how'd you do that? How did he do that? Because he had enough faith that he could curse a plant and it would not grow anymore. But we find out a couple chapters later, we get the picture in the Olivet Discourse, and we'll be there in a couple weeks, um, in Matthew 24 and 25, Israel is seen as a fig tree. 
and it will blossom again. But at this point, what he's doing, because the symbolism is Israel is like the fig tree, and he's saying, hey, I was hungry, and there's no figs on this thing, so that's it. You know, and he cursed him. And in the same way, here he's been presented as the king in Israel, and then it's back to business as usual. The religious leaders were rejecting him. The people weren't following him. It was just, oh, well, that was interesting. That was a great time. And so now as he and his disciples come out, he sees this fig tree, and he's saying, in the same way that this fig tree isn't providing fruit for me right now, and I'm going to curse it, in the same way, my people who I came to, I've been offered as their king, and yet their leaders reject me. Their leaders refuse to get with the program and understand that I'm the Messiah. They want to fight against me. They're trying to destroy me. And so he says, in the same way, I'm cursing this fig tree, but in doing so, I'm telling my own people, that's it. You've had your chance. I've made my offer. It's all over. Can't do it. You're he came unto his own, again, John said, and his own received him not. And, and so this wilting of the fig tree is a picture of Jesus turning his back on the people that he loved so much. And in a sense, after that, they were blinded. Paul talks about that a great deal, how he would have given his own salvation if Israel could have been saved. But he said they've been blinded. That's not to say that no Jews would get saved. The disciples were Jews. And many people in the early church were Jews. But as a nation, as a people, as an organized, structured culture, he would say, basically, I'm going to have to do a different program now. If you're not going to bear figs, I'm going to graft in some other kind of plant. And that's the Gentiles. Ultimately, not to reject you forever for, again, two chapters, three chapters later, he's going to be talking about the day when the fig tree would blossom again, when Israel would again become a nation after having been scattered, and that ultimately that would result in his second coming. But at this point, he was brushing the dust off his feet and saying, you've rejected me. That's it. Your leaders that you've elected, your leaders that you follow, your leaders who are supposed to be the priests, the scholars, the pastors, they're rejecting me. They want to kill me. And so as a result, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you a couple thousand years of not knowing your Messiah. Oh, the day will come when you will. But like this fig tree, you're going to wilt up now real fast. He goes on to say, it says, uh, he came into the temple again, and the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him and as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Again, not an honest question. They were trying to trip him up, and he knew it. And Jesus said to them, by this time, he knew they had rejected him already, so he said, okay, I'll ask you a question. You tell me, and I'll likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they start thinking, oh, no. That's a tough question because John was very popular. Now he had been a martyr. He had died. And they're going, oh, man, the people will kill us if we say that John wasn't from heaven. But if we say that he was from heaven, that's going to trap us into, you know, he's laying the trap to say that he is too. Because John said that he's greater than him. I'm not worthy to tie his shoelace. He must increase and I must decrease. So they said, we don't know. We don't know about where John was from heaven or, you know, whether he was a prophet or not. 
And so he said, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Because all they were trying to do is get evidence to convict him. They were trying to get him to tell them the truth, what they knew that he had said before, that he was God. And he just goes, I'm not going to play your game. If you came sincerely and you wanted to know, you'd know who I am. And I think you do know what I'm thinking, but I'm not going to allow you to use what I say and turn it on me and build up some kind of case against me, so forget it. There are questions that you don't want to answer, and this one I don't want to answer to you. You're not sincerely looking for me. Then he begins to tell them a couple of parables that shed some light, really, on on, uh, what their condition was, and he said, Uh, What do you think? There's a man that had two sons, and he came to the first and said, go to work in my vineyard. And the son said, no. But afterwards, he felt bad about it, and he went. The second son, he came to him and said, you know, go to work in my vineyard. And the son said, all right, yes, sir, I'm going. And then he never went. He said, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you didn't afterward repent and believe him. So he's saying to these religious leaders, he said, Okay, if there's a guy that has two sons, and one of them is really rebellious, but then he turns around and he does what his father wants him to do. The other one's always kissing up to him and acting like everything's fine, but then he doesn't follow through and doesn't do it. Which one actually is in the will of the father? And they said, obviously, it's better to be rebellious, but then do the right thing than to say the right thing and not do the right thing. And he says, exactly. And that's the way you guys are. You talk a good game. You act like, oh, you know, you really want to know God. But then when God sends his son to you, when God actually comes to you, when he wants to speak to you, you rejected him. And so it's better for these people who lived like hell and then repent. And you so self-righteously look down your nose at them and criticize them. He's going, at least they've turned around. At least they're heading in the right direction now. You're not. And then he goes on just to, just to bury home the point. He says, here, let me tell you another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built the tower. Develops this whole little plantation. And he leased it to the vine dressers, and he went into a far country. <clears throat> and when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the wine dresser that they might receive its fruit. So all he did was go and try to get the payment for the lease of the land. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, the landowner sent his son and said, certainly they're going to respect him. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they thought, hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we can take everything else he has. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They go, man, he's going to destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, Psalm 118. He's saying, don't you guys get it? You were the ones. God kept sending prophets to you. He kept trying to reach you, and you continued to kill them. 
And finally now he's sent his son to you and you're rejecting him. So you are right on the verge. You're right on the edge of seeing God rent his vineyard out to somebody else. Take someone else. And the stone that had been rejected, it's going to become the chief cornerstone. It's going to be the most important element. And in that building of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the building's going to be built out of all people who had been rejected, the Gentile people, those who weren't chosen. And he says, it's going to be different now. But you could have had it. You could have been there. And you didn't. And they realized, he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's going to destroy you completely if this stumbles you. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Real clever gents. And when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So Jesus here is making this announcement to the people. You've rejected God for the last time. This is it. You're rejecting his son. And now it's going to cost you. Now you're going to find yourself in a situation where God's going to move in a different people, another nation completely. The others, the ones who you consider to be dogs, yet they are the ones who will accept me when you won't. And that really made them mad. The implication of all of that, that you know you were God's chosen people, but, but that, that story is going to be over for you, at least for this period of time. And so they were upset, but they knew they couldn't do much to him. He goes ahead in chapter 22 Again, another parable, and he says, it's, kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. In those days, if you were going to have a big party or a marriage, instead of a ticket, you would send out an outfit. Everyone would have the special outfits for that event. And so as we read through this passage, he says, okay, a guy did that. He sent out all of these wedding outfits to the people that he knew who he wanted to come to the wedding. And every one of them had excuses. All of them just said, no, you know, I can't make it. I other things to do. And, and so he said, look, I'm going to have a great wedding. I'm going to have a great party. So told his servants, go ahead and take those wedding robes and go just find bums on the street, anybody that you want. Whoever will take those robes, he says, give it to them and they'll be in the wedding. And as you read down through the passage, it turns out there was one guy who, man, he saw, that does look like a pretty good party. And he ends up showing up and the guy sees him and he goes, where's your robe? He didn't have anything to say. He didn't know. He hadn't been prepared. He had rejected and then thought he could weasel in. In the same way, the only way we can come to that wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the only way we can enter into God's program is by being clothed properly in that which he invites us to partake in. And that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In this parable, he's explaining to him that if you reject that righteousness that's given to you, you can't sneak in on your own. When I was a kid, I, I learned something fairly early, and that is you can walk in almost anywhere if you act like you know what you're doing. Because security people and others who are there, they're afraid you're somebody. And if you walk like you think you're somebody, you can usually weasel your way in almost anywhere. I, I walked into places, I went into events and things like that that you'd think it would be impossible to get into. 
I remember getting into the Hollywood premiere of A Star is Born and meeting Chris Christopherson and all these different people. And I was just walking. I was dressed like I always dress. But I just walked in and acted like I knew what I was doing. And no one even stops me. Look right in the eye of the security guard. Hey, how's it going? Another time I went backstage on The Tonight Show. And, you know, I just used to do, it was fun just to do things like that. Nobody will stop you. It's how people today, when they're, the reporters go and walk onto an airplane with a bag full of plutonium and nobody says anything to them. It's just a certain thing. Well, this is kind of what that guy tried to do. And he goes, no, unless you have the proper identification, unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you're not going to slide into heaven. You're not going to just you know, slip in between a couple of other people and get there. And so he says, the king said to the servants, verse 13, bind him hand and foot, take him away, throw him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, a lot of people take that many are called and few are chosen and think and understand it to mean that, you know, it's just not fair. God only chooses certain people. And if you're not chosen, you just can't go. And that's, a, that's an interesting statement, but consider it in the context. Jesus said it several times. But here the case is obvious. The invitation was real. The people who weren't chosen, it's not that, that the master didn't choose them. They're not destined to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth simply because the master decided that he's not a chosen one. Sorry, you're not elect. See, in order to be elect, in order to be chosen... You have to accept the invitation. You have to take on the clothing. You have to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's obvious, reading the whole passage, that the problem with the people that tried to sneak in or the people who didn't show up at all wasn't that the master didn't choose them. It's that they were called. They didn't respond to the call. And as a result, they couldn't be in that special group of people. The, the emphasis is not on someone choosing them. It's the emphasis that they missed out because of their rejection of the invitation. Clearly, with whatever, and there are other times and there are other scriptures when we'll spend some more time on divine election, but whatever it means, it obviously doesn't mean that he only invites some people, that Jesus only died for some, that when he said anyone, he didn't mean anyone. When it says he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, he didn't mean all. Now, if we do that, we have to redefine so many scriptures. Do we understand completely what all of that means? No, but from here, from this parable, it's very clear. The invitation goes out to all. And those who are not clothed, it's not because they didn't get the invitation. It's not because of that at all. It's because their rejection of Jesus Christ causes them to be excluded from that special chosen group. You know, to be chosen, there may be times when, you know, you, uh, I was up at a camp this last week and, and a lot of guys were saying, oh, it's really cool to hike up this hill. There's this cross on the top of the hill. And I'm thinking... Okay. And, and I got up in the morning and there were like all the guys that were talking about it the night before weren't there. There's just a handful of guys and they're all like the, you know, the total studs of the camp. One guy's a water polo coach at Laguna Beach High School. There's other guys that are marathon runners that run 20 miles a day. And here I am and I'm going, oh, great. And they're all wearing shorts. I'm wearing jeans. I'm chugging up this hill. It's really steep and I'm warm. But when I got to the top of the hill, 
I felt kind of special. You get up there, we were above the clouds. You could see the clouds out there, hills, hilltops in the distance. And I was so glad that I made that choice to go up to the top of the hill. And when I'm up there with these guys, I felt like a chosen one. It felt like, hey, we're the real remnant of the camp, you know? But it was... It wasn't that somebody only said only certain people can go up the mountain. Anybody who wanted to could go up the mountain. But if you did, you felt chosen. So I hope that helps. It's getting late. <laughs> well, you know what? We'll just pick up. We'll just pick up here at verse 15 um, next week. And we'll, next time we're going to go through probably, uh, well, we'll probably try to get through the Olivet Discourse because I think this Sunday I'm going to take chapter 23, the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. So um, go ahead and read that passage before next week. There's all kinds of, we're getting to the best part of the story, really. I mean, it, ultimately, as we see what Jesus did for us on the cross, as he goes to the cross, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the book of Matthew, certainly, ultimately, that he fulfilled prophecy to that extent. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for choosing us. We were the, guy, the bums hiding under the bushes. You got around to us pretty late, a couple thousand years after the people who really deserved it rejected you. But I thank you that you chose us. I thank you that you came to us with those garments of praise, those, those righteous, clean garments of your righteousness. And you made the offer to us so that we could accept you and become your children. Lord, help us to remember that it's not us at all. It's all you. It's all that you're doing. We can't earn anything before you. And yet we are truly blessed. We're truly chosen. We're truly rich because of what you've done for us and because of what you've promised to do for us. And Lord, we just rejoice in being your children. As we read your book, as we read the Bible, and we see how blessed we are, and we realize humbly that where we deserve to go and what we deserve to be was wailing and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we're just so grateful that you've considered us, that you reached out to us, that when we were blind and we cried out to you, you touched our eyes, and, and with compassion, you healed us and made us see and we thank you, God. You're a good God. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.